HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Enjoy food the way nature intended. Alaska Seafood, wild, natural, and sustainable. For more information, visit wildalaskaseafood.com. Hey, this is Kat, Communications Director of HRN, here with a preview of Episode 2 of Meat and 3. This week, we're talking pork. We'll learn the best way to make a BLT. I don't think I've ever successfully made a BLT just because I eat the bacon before any other part. How pitmasters and restaurateurs are helping put small-scale pig farmers back to work in Alabama. It's all about money. That's the bottom line. What pork has to do with economics. Farmers could be particularly affected by China's threat to levy its own tariffs on pork and soybeans. And with government. Basically all of politics is pork at this point. So tune in on Friday afternoon for your weekly serving of Meat in 3. And make sure you subscribe to be the first to know when new episodes air. Hey, and welcome to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. On today's episode, Gail Peary and John Clark, their lives have kind of been like a movie. They met in San Francisco, became chefs at the Bay Area's illustrious Zuni Cafe, then foreign cinema in the Mission District in 2001. And that really revived an area that used to be known as Miracle Mile for its shopping malls marked with movie theater marquees. Now, Peary and Clark have coalesced their love of international cuisines and foreign films, as seen in their storied cookbook, which I have in my hands. And this is bigger than a movie script itself. This is quite, a, quite an accomplishment. Oh, thank you. So let's talk about contextually where you are in San Francisco before anything else, because I've been to the Mission District, and I've walked between the 16th and 24th BART stations along Mission Street, and... You were somehow positioned in between on that thoroughfare. What was it like when you got there, and what is it like now? We're almost in the middle. Um, it's the heartbeat of the mission, because at 21st and 22nd... Well, that's where foreign cinema is, the heart. Um, <laughs> but a lot of great things take place there. So carnivals, uh, judging stand takes place there, all, all kinds of... Um, peaceful parades and protests take place there. So that's really sort of the heart of the mission, we think. It feels like you've been at the heart of a lot of things in San Francisco, as far as the culinary scene goes for a while. 
Zuni Cafe. I mean, uh, that that is one of the bastions of that era of California cuisine. Talk to me about your experience and your meeting. Well, uh, we, we met before Zuni at a place called uh, Vicolo, and it's the backside of a well-known San Francisco restaurant called uh, Hay Street Grill. And um, Gail landed at Zuni before me, and I think before Zuni, uh, Judy Rogers showed. Yes, once uh, Judy showed up to the restaurant, a new um, powerful relationship was forged between ourselves, and so that's why we dedicated the book to her. It was a wonderful and rightful dedication, too, and let's just not reference her without really explaining who she is in the context of food, but also in how she's influenced the two of you. She is the birth of this what became known as rustic, California rustic cuisine. She brought a real simplicity to the food scene and a freshness in um, from this Italian or this French provincial uh, perspective. Uh, Her European um, love of food resonated with us because uh, it was a food that was romantic and um, her heart was there every day and it was impossible to, to work that closely with her without having the same affection. So our days off, we'd read lots of cookbooks that were inspiring all of us at the time, but Judy was a great leader and a great teacher. Those European references, those romantic ideas, I feel like are very similar to the cinematic quality of movies from a certain era as well. So w- what are some of your favorite movies growing up, and what do you watch now? <laughs> Holy favorite cow. Movie. <laughs> My favorite movie, certainly for many, many years, was La Dolce Vita, which the restaurant is sort of... Uh, embodied the spirit. Em- embodied the spirit um, in the early days. Uh, you know, Dr. Strangelove. There's so It's a mad, mad, mad world, which for me is comedy's pinnacle bullet of course is a love letter to san francisco and san franciscans uh chan is missing um even the crazy 70s stuff like uh, what's new pussycat and um take the money and run woody allen's um homage in the mission filmed in the mission so i mean there's so much uh and it's fun to be able to weave food and a sensual environment with cinematic classics, things that we love, and uh, to bring it all together once again to the, the Mission community. I mean, it's in the name, Foreign Cinema. It is. But how did that ever come to be? How did you find a space big enough to house movies as well as food? Well, we didn't uh, create the idiom. We came in after, but the founding fathers of Foreign Cinema, uh, John Varnado, Michael Hecht, and Bruce McDonald, as well as Juliet Varnado, um, and a group of uh, little rascals really came together. John found the site. John Varnado found the site, and uh, it was a chopped-up bunch of spaces, and he was able to see the vision of what an open courtyard would be because what foreign cinema is now is not what it looked like before. So John had this vision, and it really uh, came together. And so uh, we, we came in about a year and four months later. So that it had been built. And yeah, let's, let's talk about what it was before, because it kind of harkened to an era of that strip of Mission Street or Miracle Mile having a lot of movie theaters there, but it was also kind of beer garden-y. 
Well, originally, um, it's really, it's actually very difficult to say precisely what everything was. We know that a Byron shoe, a shoe store was in the part of the space. We know that a, a Mexican restaurant was in part of the space. We believe there was a dollar store at some point in part of the space. We believe that there was once a C's candy there. The footprint of the building is, it's like 75 feet wide by 160 feet deep. But this this one large building housed many different uh, stores. And, you know, it took actually writing this book to actually find pictures of the construction to know that uh, we built the hall. These guys built our hallway. We always thought the hallway was there. We thought, oh, there was a hallway and there was a Mexican restaurant here. And why they have this hall? But the architects, they smartly um, replicated the idea of this long hallway uh, off the street into the splendor of the courtyard and the uh, the large ceiling dining room. So, yeah, what we thought was always there was not. And so it's been a really a treat to really investigate what's happened because a lot of it's urban legend and myth and fumes. And when you have to start all over and figure out how it was, how did it get its start, it's just fascinating. We do know that our c- contractor who built the place uh, cut through these large open clear story windows it was a cement wall, and so what looks like was very carefully built was just a, a, a contractor being really rogue and just cutting out these huge concrete forms and pushing them into the courtyard filled, filled with uh, tires um, to, to catch the huge concrete uh, forms falling. And so, of course, I learned that after we had done all of our research. <laughs> so that was just, it just was quite a thing to put this place together. It's not, it appears as it's, as it's been there forever, but it was really quite a hodgepodge. It was built. Yeah. And it has this cinematic quality, like walking into a, you oh, know, yeah. a set for a movie. And it's wild to see it in the Mission District where there aren't many of those forward facing businesses that you know, you know, how large and how, how deeply affecting it is inside. Because you have, 14,000, 18,000 square feet to work with, multiple screens. Does it feel like you've actually brought La Dolce Vita to the Mission District in San Francisco? Well, during a birthday party a few years ago, yeah, we were very, very crazy and a lot more wildness. Um, The restaurant is, I think one thing that Gail loves about the restaurant is when you come in from the front doors, which are really kind of unassuming, and you walk down a 60-foot hallway, you arrive to the host stand, and then once you pass the host stand through a couple of doors, the whole thing sort of opens out in front of you. The dining room to the right, the outdoor dining room directly in front of you, the soaring ceilings, the sky. And it is an impressive thing because it's uh, it's in the middle of San Francisco. And there's, there's not another restaurant anywhere near like as voluminous as this. And um, the building did uh, take from... Uh the past, really iconic uh, objects that are important to the restaurant. For example, our 35 millimeter camera came from the new Mission Theater. Our projector. Our projector. They had, uh, they had, they, 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 they were done with it, and they needed a place. They gave it to us. Our floor in the main dining room is from the theater across the street, as well as a mezzanine uh, railing that um, helps. Uh, uh, Or define the space upstairs. It defines the space upstairs. So there is this um, theatrical renaissance reincarnate from the neighborhood that makes us really 
pulse with what used to be so that the dining room floor being an old, you know, Pinewood uh, theater floor really adds to the the pathos of the place and where the where the passion was at the beginning. And the fact that it's real to real and not just streaming on demand. Yeah. But we, I know we've set the scene a lot. Uh, with that, there is so much amazing food within those walls. And where, where do your influences come from? Because I look at the list of movies you play, and they're far-ranging and, and quite global. Well, the movies are really, we choose the movies, and people throw in their two cents about a movie they think is good to watch. So the, I, I'm not sure if the movies specifically relate to the food per se. But they're chosen, um, we like to do independent films, and we like to uh, weave in a, a classic and then something a little more modern. But you have to be careful. There are some films where there's a little too much violence or something very unsettling, so you kind of need to make sure you know what's going to happen because we do have uh, a huge community in the courtyard dining, and we have certainly run a few films um, accidentally that were a little <laughs> off-putting, and we had to... Yeah, we, Yeah, so you do have to be careful. So. It's a different kind of pairing rather than yes. food and beverage, like food and, food exactly. and cinema. But on that, we're going to take a quick break, come back and talk to Gail and John of Foreign Cinema a little bit more. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Think about what it takes to swim a coastline longer than the entire eastern seaboard and leap tall waterfalls in a single bound. What does it take to survive 200 feet deep in icy saltwater? What would you be made of? Wild Alaska seafood is made of tight muscle mass, long chain omega-3s, and incredible micronutrients. It matters where your food comes from. Experience the flavor of the fittest in every bite and enjoy food the way nature intended. Alaska seafood, wild, natural, and sustainable. Ask for Alaska on the menu, grocery store, or smart device. For more information, visit wildalaskaseafood.com. Hey, and welcome back to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Here today with Gail Perry and John Clark of Foreign Cinema in San Francisco. And what I'm holding in my hand is, is this tome. I don't know a better word because it is, it's quite an accomplishment of a book, cataloging not only this journey that we just talked about, uh, you know, raising a cinema in the middle of Miracle Mile in the Mission District of San Francisco, but the food here, too, is, is so intricate and interesting and thoughtful um, just as much as the movies are. And I love that you took this book and separated it out into titular movies as well to kind of get people accustomed to what's to come. Um, and the first one, The Magnificent Seven, wonderful movie. I mean, you talked about violence before. There's a little bit in that one. A little yeah. bit. Yeah, yeah. But what was lovely is Abrams, our publisher, really let us uh, create the book that we wanted to see. And starting with Cocktails... I always felt sad when the cocktails were shoved in the back of a book. It seems like so we were able to divide the book into um, how a meal might work at foreign cinema. So starting with cocktails uh, made perfect sense. And the Magnificent Seven were seven iconic drinks that we 
that tells such a big story about our restaurant because over the years we've had some great people behind the bar creating iconic drinks. So there were a lot of drinks to choose from, more than seven, but it, it gave us a good framework. And then yeah. the Life Aquatic, which is quirky as heck. You know, it was such a great film, but obviously is is part of the sea. So then to talk about oysters on the half shell, fried, this coconut green curry with steamed mussels, ceviche, uh, tuna carpaccio, I mean, you're already in the mindset. So you say you don't pair food with movies, but you are doing so intentionally or not, subconsciously. I, Gail did a great job on, you know, thinking of these, these uh, movie intros. Well, it was hard to weave the film and the, and the food together without being too... Obvious. Obvious or melodramatic about it. So the chapter titles um, hope to evoke a sense of something without spending a lot of time talking about it. So the Life Aquatic, of course, was... This is a a very beautiful way to start a meal, you know, uh, start off with some oysters, things from the ocean. So um, once we had a couple of these movies that could work as chapter titles for each chapter, it, it got really fun and it felt very authentic and really passionate because uh, a lot of these movies are our favorite movies. And then you follow with Barefoot in the Park and it references your urban picnic menu. But tell me what's so special about that movie and the food there with. Well, there's probably not a huge direction between this Robert Redford, Jane Fonda movie, except the idea of being barefoot in a park evokes a sense of whimsy and play. And Picnic, then, time to have snacks and share and eat together, put out a blanket. So the urban picnic really um, kind of made sense with this particular title. It set, a, it set a scene because the courtyard is an urban oasis, and we invite our guests at the beginning of the meal to start with an urban picnic. And I love that, and it's full of a gravlox board, beef tartare, duck pate, brandad. I mean, like you said, all the things that you can share but are transportable enough to almost transport you anywhere. Yeah. And the, the next is where it shifts a little bit. You start talking about premieres and features, and you know those are referencing your main courses, your entrees. Um, what are the movies and what are the dishes, and they don't have to correspond, that have most affected the way that you cook? Radio Silence. <laughs> I don't know that movie. I don't know. <laughs> um, I don't know. Well, you know, the premieres and features are actually uh, the, the nomenclature we use on the menu to kind of uh, set, a, set a mood, to set a tone. So the book is very organized, much like the menu is. So as you might arrive to the restaurant, you'd order a cocktail, and then you might dive into the oysters, and then uh, the urban picnic is there for sharing. Then the premieres. The premieres and the features really um, were a way to... Well, you know, when you go to a movie and you sit down and the first thing that happens, you start seeing a couple of ads and then up the features, uh, the upcoming features and then the main feature. So I think when Gail, actually Gail named these things 15 years ago. So it just evokes a sense of you are here in a unique place with cinema and you're starting and the word premiere just seemed very beautiful and you know because as menu writers you get really tired of trying to figure out what you know appetizer first course second course it all just seems so dead but to to you know breathe in a little bit of vision and life you know it gives us a little bit of um entertainment and it helps paint a picture for the guest a little bit of whimsy you know 
restaurant doesn't need to take itself too seriously. You're supposed to go there and have fun. And I feel like that said in the premiere section, there's a dish called Love Soup with Toast Spices. And when I first read it, I thought it was a movie, an esoteric movie that I didn't know. But what, what, is, what would be the screenplay of that dish? What does that mean to you? Wow. <laughs> Holy cow. Well, you know, this soup has really got a beautiful color to it. When you make it, it's this gorgeous you know, crimson. So I think it's really mostly poetic. It's not very literal. It just, it just is a, is a soup that has a color that looks like a heart or a Valentine. So I think the word love was just, um, poetically thrown out there. And the toast, we had done the soup for Valentine's day. Cause we were many years ago, we we're looking for something to make Valentine's day an interesting experience. We thought, Oh, Gail want to do this blood red soup. And we greeted Hopefully guests. it's not a punctured heart. That <laughs> yeah. It's a heart that yeah. has been saved. Or, a, or not a bleeding heart. I see so many anticuchos, <laughs> so many chicken hearts on sticks during Valentine's. Yeah, it, who wants that? I mean, that's kind of gross. It was a <laughs> oh way, my gosh. It, it was a way to greet the guests with a little bit of love in a cup, and it just sort of stuck. There are a whole bunch of other recipes in here that I look at and I think are movies rather than menu items, like Le Grande Oli. First of all, tell me what that dish is, and... Let's talk about what kind of movie that might be. Well, that is Gail's favorite dish, and it harkens back from the very beginnings of uh, Provence, France, this, this fabulous... Well, this idea of having beautiful um, vegetables and proteins combined on a plate artistically with a big crock of aioli, what is more better than that? I mean, food gets modern, but um, there's something about the dish that is full of so much heart and whatever time of year it is you can do something along the lines um we we make it a lot for ourselves i think uh, john and i make this for ourselves at home all the time well you have to go back to the original state of judy rogers in 1987 and uh i arrived uh the week she hi- was hired and her first thing was to make aioli at this restaurant get these people to make real judy rogers aioli in a mortar by hand with three ingredients and we have followed this forward from that moment on to this day so it's an act of purity and and an invigoration i mean the classics you know you bring enthusiasm vigor and passion to classics and that gives them new resonance and uh, vitality and so um that's why now what movie it would be i have no idea i think you just wrote the movie with those explanations and i I may be mistaken, but I, I do believe there's a French film called Le Grand Aeoli. If not, you, you two should certainly be the central figures. Fantastic. We'll fly you to Provence. We can just, you know, eat garlicky mayonnaise all day. And it will be a silent film because there'll be so much eating. But there are these other little poetic instances within your menus, too. There's a, a rasa honu quail with basmati rice stuffed um, and a rose petal sauce. Yeah. A beautiful per- rose petal sauce. and delicious, savory, melting ingredients in your mouth. Just the whole thing. The floral notes of the rose petals spiked with preserved lemon. And then the amazing Rossella Nude on a little roasted bird. There's just nothing like it. And then the stuffing just kind of makes it all sing together. And there's a champagne butter sauce that you serve with scallops. Yes. Well, champagne. Who doesn't want champagne? In just about anything. Um, that's sort of a beautiful thing. Uh, very fragrant. And sometimes you drop a little citrus in it. And sometimes uh, cardamom pod. 
Not a lot of cardamom, just to just give it a crazy background taste. I want to segue into what foreign cinema is this destination for brunch in this way that you may love or may hate because I know what brunch is like from the back of the house perspective. But you, you serve classics of San Francisco like the Hangtown Fry, fried oysters, bacon in, a, in an omelet. But what is your champagne omelet and why have eggs been become such a focal point of foreign cinema? Well, we wrote the egg book many years ago. Plus, eggs were in jail for the for the a good part of the eighties. Remember that? No, well, they were I'm in jail. In, in, I'm not going to give my age away, but yes, no, I do not explain why eggs were in jail. It was a combination of cholesterol and um, salmonella. So, in about 1991, when we had this 92, we had 93, we had this idea for this egg book because we had both been doing brunches at Zuni and had really sort of pioneered the this method of dealing with eggs, you know, the very free form. I think people just forgot and, you know, brunch has become an amazing um, profit center for restaurants because a, a brunch culture awoke in America. And I think in San Francisco, um, we had something to do with the, our local brunch explosion. Uh, brunch wasn't a hit at the beginning. It was we had to give away free Bloody Marys and uh, for a good solid two years. Yeah, but they had to come all the way down to the mission. They were eating someplace else for brunch. But remember, it's a lot of hotels. And then we, the brunch culture explosion um, emerged and purity and preparing eggs well and having a nice egg chosen uh, and a farmer's market egg uh, is really important, and you can tell the difference. And I think the America's hungry for that. A lot of urban audiences are ready for just integrity and simplicity and purity, and so eggs have really answered that. It's really the perfect food because now we understand that the cholesterol in eggs is good, and it's a it's a it's a protein that goes right to your brain. So if you just need something simple at home, an omelet is a way to go for dinner, and a glass of wine is is really quite the most simple and pure thing you can do. Especially in the way that you elevated, you know, a meal that was often regulate relegated to leftovers or you know upselling some thing that wasn't really worth it but then you have things like balsamic fried eggs with roasted radicchio and a croque madame for two i mean what couldn't well, be more enjoyable and decadent than that you know the egg things the, the the fried eggs you know you go to a lunch spot all of your life it's f- two eggs with hash browns and something but at the very beginning we we're able to develop this idea of taking the egg and using it as the protein for a wide range arrangement on the plate and the radicchio is bitter the the balsamic vinegar helps cut the yolk. It just became this amazing thing that became a staple and a, a signature dish at uh, foreign cinema. We were and always it came ad- out of our book. We were always out of it. Addi- we always want to provide addictive flavors, you know, to, to, to just seduce our clients, to get them to come back because they're so addicted to our food. That's really what we're interested in all the time. But not to have something so overly complex that it's not, you can't, you can't access it. You need to be able to access the food regularly and feel comfortable eating it i mean just like you you play accessible movies um and i read once that your restaurant was described as north african california mediterranean but now you have this thai film i think playing at the moment tears of the black tiger um what i've never seen this film what what is it like and has it changed your mind perception about thai cuisine and using those flavors 
within your restaurant? Well, the recipe, there's a recipe in the book that you mentioned briefly, the Thai coconut curry sauce with the mussels. We spent six months in Hong Kong working with a Thai chef and a, and an a, and a Chinese, a Cantonese chef. And we really learned a lot about Thai food at the time. And um, this movie that's there is a very interesting um, I just actually watched it the other night <laughs> for the first time. Well, it's a it's a very visually beautiful movie, but it's full of there there it's full of sadness and and emotion. But it's so beautiful. It is it is a visual poem. Tragedy. And so uh, it, that our our we try and make our food poetic in the sense that it's um, steeped in the classics, but with a, a twist of something that might surprise you. Or you might not be able to put your finger on it, and uh, the film has a lot of that in it as well. And that is playing till June 10th, and from June 11th to July 5th. Splash, one of my favorite movies ever. Really? Uh, oh, you don't even get me. Well, I, I was smitten with Daryl Hannah, but I also am a big Tom Hanks fan. And then July 7th through August 2nd, The Maltese Falcon, another amazing movie, and. Uh, August 6th through September 2nd, Alice in Wonderland. Uh, I kind of want to go and see them all. You, yeah, you should, well, the, because it'll be beautiful. Maltese Falcon is great. Sydney Greenstreet, I mean, who knows this guy anymore, but except an old guy like me. <laughs> Again, we're not dating ourselves on this no, show. But I want to end in the way that you actually end at the restaurant or refer people to ending. Uh, there's a good night Boulevardier, which is rye whiskey, Italian amaro, aromatized wine, and chocolate bitters. But I love that you have a fin, uh, F-I-N-I. Uh, it's a suggestion to conclude your evening with a dram of Remy Matan, 1738, a cord royal cognac. What, why do you find that to be the perfect you know, end scene of a night at Foreign Cinema? Well, how astute of you to actually notice. We, we just want to make sure that we offer... Um, What's more romantic than a little, you know, cognac or something at the end of a, a meal? A sip of something really quite heady and... Um, Rich and inviting. Gut-pleasing is a wonderful way to end the meal, especially if you've had a little piece of cheese or a little profiterole. So um, it's just our way of saying goodnight and to make sure that um, it's it's on it's an option for people who, who may not even want to eat their, their dessert, but maybe just drink their dessert. We never even referenced or mentioned the fact that you two are a couple, have two children, don't split front of the house, back of the house, but exist as co-chefs. And we don't have to go into that because I feel like you've already introduced us to the way that you work together through your conversation, through the way that you interact here. Um, and if you've never done that, go to Foreign Cinema and go see Gail and John and have some wonderful food, movie and a dinner, dinner and a movie. Whichever absolutely. way you want to have it. But thank you so much for being thank you. here. And being... Thank you for having us. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. And I'll see you in San Francisco soon, I'm sure. Cannot wait. <laughs> you You've been listening to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. A big thank you to Alaska Seafood, Music by Cookies, and David Tattashore Engineering. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. 
Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.